Turn your windshield time into learning time. When you're not listening to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, listen to the next book that is going to unlock something so you can do better in your day-to-day by signing up for Audible. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash Audible to get a free book and a free month and learn why it's one of my favorite tools. Welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. My name is Trace Blackmore, and Nation, what an amazing day. It is episode 350. That is an amazing number. I can't believe we have 350 episodes out there of the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Yes, if you're really counting, there's probably a lot more out there. When I was originally numbering the podcast, I was trying to do creative numbering. So I did episode 14.1, 14.2. Anyway, we did all of that and I got out of track. And then we just came to our senses by us coming to our senses. That was me. And I just decided that sequential is probably the best way to number podcasts. So we just keep up with the number that we are at. So we're going to officially say there's 350 podcast episodes out there of Scaling Up H2O. And Nation, we are getting stronger and stronger each and every day in this Scaling Up Nation. And the only way that is happening is because you are telling other water treaters that there is a podcast out there for them, and they are making sure that they subscribe to our podcast. So each and every Friday, they get a brand new episode just like you do, and imagine not knowing that there was an industrial water treatment podcast out there, and then somebody sharing the gift that there are more than 350 episodes. Now, I can't say that because we said officially it's 350, even though I numbered a little bit oddly in the beginning. So officially, there's 350 episodes. You and I know that there are more than 350 episodes, but just imagine knowing for the first time that you have this wealth of information out there. And we've had so many amazing guests on this show. There is just so much knowledge that you get to assimilate as you are driving from account to account servicing all of your customers, and now you get to bone up on all this great water treatment knowledge. So thank you for all the listeners out there that share that with new listeners. That's how we find new members of the Scaling Up Nation. It is all you, so thank you for doing that. And by the way, if you have not gone on your favorite podcast player and left us a review I'm going to politely ask that you do that. I know that doesn't sound like a big thing, but that tremendously helps us get our podcast in front of more industrial water treaters that they might not have known that there was an industrial water treatment podcast out there. So every time we get some sort of review, it actually pushes our ranking when people search for water treatment podcasts up higher and makes it easier for people to find. So I would very much appreciate it. The great team here at Scaling Up H2O would appreciate it if you could leave a review on your favorite podcast player. 
Well, Nation, on episode 350, I want to talk about something I mentioned a little bit last week. We're going to go into a little bit more detail this week. I've been involved with the Association of Water Technology since 2004, and one of the things that I get to do each and every year is I get to be one of the presenters at their technical training. And their technical training has so many things to offer. And I wanted to go over a few things because, one, I'm going to be there. And I know if you're going to be there, I get to meet you. So I want to make sure that you know everything that's available to you. So hopefully we can get you in a seat so you and I can talk and meet each other. And if we've already met, I want to hear what's been going on since the last time we saw each other. So the first thing is sales training. Now, I actually do the sales training, and what I've done, I've put together a lot of items, many items that you've heard me talk about here on this very podcast, but I've done it in a way that allows you to figure out how to cut through all the red tape when you are trying to sell your water treatment wares doing it with all the things that we mentioned here on the podcast. So that is the very first day. And simultaneously on that first day, there's also the membrane technology, the RO and ultra filtration training going on the air wall curtain right beside me. So these include things like uh, reverse osmosis, ultra filtration, EDI, and all things related membrane technology. So maybe that is something that you want to do. Or maybe you are new in this industry, or maybe you want to make sure that you can explain this industry to somebody that's new or even some of your customers. Well, if that's you, you want to attend the Fundamentals and Applications Training That is also something that I have a part in. You'll also see people like Justin Ranger, who's been on this podcast, and Mark Lewis, who has been on this podcast. We get together and we try to lay down a foundation of knowledge so you can build everything you are ever going to learn on all things industrial water treatment. So that's the fundamentals and applications training. And that goes on right after. So the day after sales training and the ultra filtration training. So the fundamentals and application training goes simultaneously with the water treatment training. Now, this is a very intensive industrial water treatment course, and this course covers all things industrial water treatment from regulatory and safety issues, water chemistry, testing, calculations. I'm very fond of calculations. I get to teach you calculations if you take that course. Boiler water treatment, cooling water chemistries. We even talk about Legionella regulations and so much more. Now, here's the cool thing about this class. Really, it's with every one of the courses, but you get to hear not only the material in the course, but all the firsthand knowledge that the people presenting have. And where do you get that? Where do you get all of that knowledge in one place? Well, this is a great place to go. Also, 
there is a wastewater training class and an ASSE 12,080 course. Now, they don't do those at each one of the conferences, so you need to check and see which training you're going to. So that way, if you want to go to wastewater, you go to the one where they're having wastewater. If you want to go to the ASSE 12,080 training, you go to that one. Now, uh, ASSE 12,080, I think, is a great designation for people to have in this industry because so many of our customers want to know more about what they need to do with Legionella due diligence. And when somebody has that certification, I really think it bolsters not only their knowledge, but their confidence and how they can properly talk to their customers. So if you are looking at getting certified, this is an option that you can do. Of course, there's also other options. There are other courses that you can take from the comfort of your own home. But if you want an in-person course, this is one of the few courses out there that actually are in person. So go ahead and check that out. And I did mention wastewater. Folks, for those of you that are involved in wastewater or thinking about getting involved with wastewater, this wastewater seminar is second to none. Experts in the field are telling you baseline knowledge all the way up to advanced knowledge and all of their experience is going along with it. There's even hands-on testing so you can figure out what is the best way to methodically go through treating a new wastewater. So I highly recommend that. That's a great class that's done. All of these courses are great courses. Now, when are they gonna be held? The first one is gonna be March 6th through 9th in Frisco, Texas. And then the next one is April 17th through 20th in Cleveland, Ohio. Folks, like I said, I will be there. I hope to see you there. And all you have to do is go to scalinguph2o.com and go over to our events page and we'll have every bit of information that you are going to need to figure out which training you're gonna go to and what classes you are going to sign up for. Nation, speaking of the Association of Water Technologies, I have met so many amazing people at the AWT, and the member that I'm getting ready to introduce as our guest has been on the show several times, but here he is once more. I know you're going to love it. Here's our interview. My lab partner is returning guest, Mike Standish, Vice President of Water Additives at MFG Chemical and founder of Radical Polymers. Welcome, Mike. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me back. Well, I, and I mentioned that returning guest, you just said welcome back. I'm not welcoming you back for one welcome back. It's actually your third time on the podcast. So thank you for all that you do to help the Scaling Up Nation. Absolutely. Maybe uh, the third time will be the charm and, uh, you know, we'll do a good job this time. Well, I got to tell you, the other two times were episodes 14 and 176. And episode 14, 
I have gotten so much feedback where people now can understand polymers because you did such a good job of saying, hey, we overcomplicate this stuff. This is a real simple way to look at it. So that's episode 14, if you haven't heard that. And then in 176, we talked about tagged polymers, which of course is the new water treatment craze. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, actually some further advancements there, I think, uh, recently that uh, some people introduced at AWT with uh, maybe more simplified monitoring. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, nice to see that, you know, progress. Well, there have been some changes with radical polymers. Can you tell the nation a bit about that? Yeah, since uh, 176, which I had to go back and look, that was, I think, January of 21, we sold our company to a company called MFG Chemical. And, um, you know, that that was interesting. You know, I I would say it was interesting for us and interesting for our customers. Uh, We didn't take that lightly. A lot of it was precipitated by the supply chain crisis that was going on during that time in COVID, where we were you know, probably having to manage a lot with uh, bringing our products in from Europe. And so MFG was a local manufacturing company with plants uh, here in the U.S., and it was just great uh, fit. In fact, the CEO of MFG is a longtime water treatment guy, Paul Turgeon. So it was just a great fit for our customers, for our employees, and, and for, you know, me, Chelsea, and others at, at Radical Polymers. I know that has to be exciting. Mike, we've had you on a couple of times, but if somebody is just tuning in to you for the first time, can you tell the nation a bit about yourself? Yeah, I started in 1986 in the water industry, working as a chemist or a co-op student, actually, at the time, doing a scale testing, lab work. And I, I've pretty well done that through most of my career, probably the first half of my career, always as a bench chemist. Uh, working, developing scale inhibitors, corrosion inhibitors, and to some degree, biocides. And then uh, the second half, more on the business side. So yeah, I've been working and developing uh, technologies for water additives since 1986 and through a number of companies. And, you know, that's my passion. Well, Mike, at the most recent AWT convention, you presented a paper. I was extremely impressed with that. So I wanted to have you on the Scaling Up podcast so we could talk about the paper that you presented. Yeah, that's uh, great. We we presented a paper that was, uh, has a long title, but essentially the, the beginning of the title is purposely built. And the idea was around kind of, kind of looking at history of some of the sulfonated polymers in particular and trying to build on the learnings of since actually the 1970s of those types of products to make a tailored material for today's conditions. Mike, let's start from ground one. How would you define a polymer? Yeah, so a little bit of a soapbox for me because polymer uh, comes from the Greek term uh, poly meaning many and myrrh meaning units. So that's not the soapbox moment. But basically, there's two types of polymers, either homopolymers, which you're having the same repeating units, or copolymers, which you have two or more different types of repeating units. So the soapbox moment a little bit for me is, is that anything more than one monomer is a copolymer, whether it has three, four, five, or however many numbers you, you know you wanted to put in there, everything's a copolymer. So 
we in our industry and kind of our common uh, language will use, you know, terpolymers, tetrapolymer, quad polymer, what have you. But those are more marketing terms from a strict technical polymer science view. Anything with two or more monomers is a copolymer. So we're just stringing these things together using a synthesis process where we take, again, these individual units called monomers and react those using what's called free radical polymerization. For the most part in our industry, that's the method. And we string the the monomers together to form homopolymers, copolymers, et cetera. As we talked about in episode 14, polymers can be very tricky when we think of all the different ways that are used to describe them. What do you want every water treater to know about polymers? I think the thing that you have to know about polymers is very different than other molecules. Basically, every other molecule that we as water treaters use are discrete. So, for instance, if you buy PBTC phosphonate, phosphonobutane tricarboxylic acid, that is a molecule that is very strictly defined. It has so many carbon atoms, so many phosphorus, oxygen, hydrogen, so forth. Polymers like we use for scale control and waste treatment are randomly produced. Uh, so they're not the exact same. Uh, and, and that's very critical because what you can see is is pretty vast differences in functionality and quality from, you know, one polymer to the next. Uh, You can really change very nuanced things and see pretty profound effects on the efficacy of the polymer. So I think, you know, without getting kind of in the weeds so much on that, what I would say is the main thing I would want people to know about polymers is that somebody's buying, say, a 3,000 molecular weight polyacrylate that's not all you need to know because it's not exactly 3,000 molecular weight. It's made by a random process. It can be made using a lot of different systems uh, that can impart very, very different properties to the polymer. So you need to engage with your supplier and really, you know, kind of ask those next levels of questions because polymer A is not the same as polymer B. So you mentioned molecular weight. Another way of measuring is Dalton's. Can you explain those two? And when we're reading literature about polymers, what do we need to know about that so we can have the next conversation with our supplier? Yeah. So, yeah, Dalton's is just the measuring unit. In theory, it's the formula weight. So if somebody says that I have a product that's 3,000 molecular weight, the technical term for the measurement would be Dalton, but that means that it weighs 3,000. If you add up all the mass of all the atoms in the polymer, then it would technically be 3,000. However, that's not actually the case because when you make polymers, you're making a distribution of molecular weights. And so if you're making them well, normally it's a Gaussian distribution or a bell-shaped curve. And so you'll have in that 3,000, quote unquote, so podcast air quotes, I'd say, in that 3,000 molecular weight, that's actually the average molecular weight or the M sub W is the notation for that. So you'll have thing, you'll have strands of polymer that are 1,000. You'll have strands that are 5,000, but on average, they work out to be 3,000. When you spoke, you made the comment, it all started with chrome. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so I like the history of kind of how technology has developed and 
not developed in the water industry because in a way, you know, we've been stuck in time in, in some ways for the last several decades with technology around water treatment. I think that's a good thing and a bad thing, but I like to kind of look at the history. And if, if we go back to the, you know, pre 1970s, the role of polymers in water treatment was pretty simplistic. They were mainly used as dispersants and maybe some specialized scale control. And the reason for that was, is at least in cooling water technology, you could use chromate. And so chromate is a phenomenal corrosion inhibitor for mild steel. And because it's so effective, you can operate cooling systems down at pH six and a half or seven, and there's really no potential for scale like calcium carbonate or calcium phosphate or what have you. So, you know, you use chromate, make your, um, you know, water orange and great corrosion control. And, and really the role of polymers there is to uh, disperse solids, you know, windblown debris or what have you, the turbidity that collects in the circulating water. So, you know, the, the role of polymers were pretty simplistic at that point. But then comes, you know, the banning of uh, hexavalent chromium in cooling water systems or in water treatment in general and uh, at that point, then the industry uh, looks for alternate corrosion inhibitors, and we landed on phosphates, polyphosphates for the most part, you know, phosphorus compounds. But the types of polymers that had been used as dispersants for solids were not effective as stabilizers for calcium phosphate you know, and stabilizing those corrosion inhibitors for mild steel. So a whole new class of polymers had to be developed at that time. So that's why I say from a polymer point of view, it's almost like a demarcation in time where uh, sulfonated polymers and other polymer types came on the market along with the elimination of chromate. I remember I was in elementary school and I would follow my father around as he would service accounts and they were using chrome back then in the very early 80s, maybe even pre-70s. I probably would have been five years old in 1980, so probably right around that time. But I remember him saying the water wasn't orange enough. That was the primary test. Yeah, and I mean, it was phenomenal. And if anybody wants to kind of get a little 30,000-foot view of it, uh, you can go back and watch the movie Aaron Brockovich because that kind of talks a little bit about that. That lawsuit out in California discusses, you know, the elimination of chromate and, and the hazards of that and started the transition of the industry. My wife wanted to go see that when it first came out. I reluctantly went to the theater with her because I didn't want to go see a chick flick, but it was all about cooling towers. It was the most fantastic movie. It's probably the only water treatment movie out there. There we go. We'll have to, we'll have to see how many people uh, watch that movie when uh, this episode comes out. Mike, I feel I need to share this with you. I had a chemistry professor that he started out a class one day and he said, hexavalent chrome will kill you. Trivalent chrome, they put in vitamins. Chemistry is a wicked mistress. <laughs> I like that. You know, one thing I would say, just so we don't lose this kind of part a little bit, is it's really important to know that when phosphorus chemistry came on board as the type of mild steel corrosion inhibitor, the the issue is, is it's not as effective as chromate. 
And and so other adjustments have had to be made, which again seem kind of second nature to us today, but at the time were pretty profound. Because that uh, phosphorus chemistry is not as effective as chromate, well, what water treaters had to do is, is start to operate systems that are in more scaling environments. So your pH shift is probably the major one. You started to eliminate the use of uh, acids in many cases. We started to operate cooling towers where our circulating water pHs were more typically between 8 and 9 instead of 7 and 8 to mitigate corrosion, to get in a range where the phosphorus chemistry could be effective. So that's a major thing, but we increased the potential for scaling, you know, when that occurred. And then what had to happen is these new classes of polymers had to be developed to stabilize the phosphorus or the phosphate compounds like calcium phosphate in the water. A lot of companies changed to using phosphates and zinc. What was the name brand product? Dianotic 2, I think it was called? Yeah. So there were two approaches. Calgon had a lot of patents around the use of uh, sulfonated chemistry, acrylic acid, amps, copolymers, which is really great for stabilizing calcium phosphate. And then you mentioned the Dynotic 2, which was BETS technology. They took a different approach. They used carboxylate non-ionic copolymers, specifically a non-ionic called hydroxypropyl acrylate. And that is also a a very good calcium phosphate stabilizer. The problem was with the Dianotic 2 and the hydroxypropyl acrylate is it's not hydrolytically stable. So that's why you had to have a two-drum treatment. So, you know, that kind of went by the wayside, uh, you know, over a relatively short period of time. And where the industry settled was on sulfonated copolymers for phosphate stabilization and zinc. Uh, stabilization as well. Fortuitously, the sulfonates will help stabilize both phosphate and zinc. So, Mike, you've taken us into the early 1980s. What happened next? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting to me because, again, to recap a little bit of what happened is, so we have this one strand of, of technology that's carboxylate sulfonate. We have another strand of technology that's carboxylate non-ionic, And those two technology strands, if you will, kind of came together uh, by Roman Haas, actually, back in the day. And and they looked at, okay, how we we see these functionalities working. How can we bring bring these together? And so you started to see the copolymers containing three monomers or, you know, soapbox again, terpolymer, where we we combine carboxylate, sulfonate, and non-ionic. And and what was found around that time is is that the non-ionic could really provide some enhancements. It could help with reducing dosage levels, could expand the functionality range beyond just phosphate, iron, and zinc stabilization, you know, and could add some other benefits uh, to that. The one point I would also make is that everything since then has been a variation on that theme. So what we use today, it doesn't matter what brand of product you use or, you know, what copolymer, terpolymer, tetrapolymer or whatever that you use, it's all a variation on the theme of carboxylate, sulfonate, and then potentially the addition of the non-ionic monomer as the enhancer. 
as they were developing these, as they were trying to figure out, are they working better than what we previously had? What kind of tests were they doing? How were they verifying that? Yeah. So for me, I've been doing this type of testing since 1986. And there's some types of scales that like calcium carbonate, um, you know, calcium carbonate, you, you can develop reasonably decent, you know, laboratory tests to evaluate additives for calcium carbonate. But, you know, pilot testing or actual field testing is, you know, almost mandatory at, at some point because uh, there's usually a gap. But for calcium phosphate and zinc stabilization, iron stabilization, the benchtop testing is actually a very good proxy for what you'd observe in the field. So there's, there's benchtop testing that's used or bottle testing, you know, where you would make up synthetic water that would replicate, you know, what was going to be employed in the field. Uh, and then certainly people, you know, would use pilot testing as well and then go into field testing. But one thing that I would say that would be important for your uh, you know, audience to, to think about is that with calcium phosphate stabilization, iron stabilization, zinc stabilization, that kind of class, we're not dealing with rocket science. We're not dealing with rocket science with any polymers, but in particular this, there is a very direct correlation between the amount of sulfonate, the amount of non-ionic, you know, molecular weight, some of these key things, and efficacy of the product. So you can see that pretty plainly in black and white within the benchtop testing and pilot testing and certainly out in the field with phosphate, iron, and zinc stabilization. Let's unpack that a little bit more. If somebody went to their safety data sheet and they saw what polymers were in their products, what do the different polymers do that people are going to see today specifically so they can, they can understand their safety data sheets better? But then also, how is the different mixes between the two, how is that changing the formulations? Yeah, so... You know, a typical cooling water formulation uh, is, is going to have, say, azole in it for, you know, yellow metal corrosion. It's, it's going to have a phosphonate in it unless it's a zero P type application. And the phosphonate typically is in there for strictly for calcium carbonate threshold inhibition. And you might use, you know, say, HEDP phosphonate if you're in a low LSI or a low to moderate LSI condition, and then PBTC phosphonate if you're in a higher LSI condition. And then comes the selection around corrosion inhibitors. So if, if we choose phosphate, polyphosphate blends in there, then we've got to choose a polymer that's, that's, util, that's functional for stabilization of the phosphate and in the circulating water. So that today is typically a sulfonated copolymer that may or may not have a, a non-ionic in it as well. If we have severe issues with calcium carbonate, we may, may also incorporate a maleic-based polymer in there to complement the PBTC for calcium carbonate control under stress conditions. And that'll be kind of the you know, basic framework of today's cooling water formulation. Most people, as they're reading their formulations or their safety data sheets, they're going to come across a term, AA-AMPS. What is that? And what should every water treater know? 
Yeah. So um, AA is acrylic acid, and AMPS is actually a trademarked term by Lubrizol Company because they were the developer of, of that molecule. And that is a sulfonated monomer that's called 2-acrylamido-2-methylpropane sulfonic acid. Just rolls off the tongue. Yes. Well, uh, AMPS is the uh, you know short acronym for that. And by far, there are other sulfonated uh, monomers used out there, but by far, I'd say at least 80% of the copolymers that you're going to see out there that are sulfonate are going to contain AMPS as the, as the monomer. And then, you know, you may see, again, a third or fourth monomer added in there. And in the industry, the dominant products that are used that, you know, your audience would be purchasing and familiar with could be acrylic acid amps copolymers or the, just a straight AA amps. And there's a couple of variations of those. Typically, the industry will look at it as a 75-25 AA amps, and I'll explain that, or a 60-40 AA amps. And those are the weight ratios of the acrylic acid to amps on a weight basis. And that's important to know, too, a little bit in the weeds, but a little important to know is that typically what you want to do, because amps is a much bigger molecule than acrylic acid, weight ratios are a little deceptive. You typically want to look at them on a molar ratio. So I want to, I don't really care about weight. I want to know kind of how many repeating units there are of acrylic acid and how many repeating units there are of amps. It works out to be that the 75-25 version is a 90-10 ratio on a molar basis. So that means if you have a polymer that is 10 repeating units long, nine of those are acrylic acid, one of those is the sulfonate, the amps. And in the case of the 60-40 weight ratio, that works out to be about 82% acrylic acid on a molar basis and 18% of the sulfonate, the amps. So in the same scenario, we've got 8.2 repeating units and 1.8 repeating units, but it's 80% more sulfonate in the 60-40 or you know, uh, 82-18 acrylic acid amps. That makes a big difference. You, know, you can see dosage demand being really dropped that's proportional to the increase in, in sulfonate in those polymers. And then from there, the people will incorporate relatively modest amounts of non-ionic monomers in there that will show some enhancements. Good examples of that is, if you think about it, the straight copolymer of acrylic acid and amps, it's fully anionic or negatively charged. So it's mainly going to associate with charged particles and not so much organics, not so much some types of iron oxides that'll have some hydrophobic character. So, you know, one great example of the benefit of adding the non-ionic is it'll help the molecule start to associate with a broader range of particulates where it can function as a dispersant. Mike, where do you see polymer technology going into the future? You know, I, I mentioned a little earlier that for the most part with chemistry in the water industry, we've been pretty stagnant. You know, people are pretty well doing variation of what they were doing in the 1980s uh, across the board. Okay, you, you've got tag polymers, but that in itself is not 
particularly new. It's kind of new to the broad industry, but, you know, it's been around for a little while. You know, most of the innovation has been around monitoring and control and uh, equipment, you know, in our industry. So, you know, I, I, I think as very broad trends of what we'll see with technology on the polymer side is we'll uh, deal with some of the macro trends like, you know, reuse water where we're having more phosphate, say, in, in our, you know, having used poor quality water, using gray water, what have you. And we, you know, end up with cooling towers that have, you know, 30, 40, 50 ppm of phosphate in circulating water. Well, we've got to up our game on the polymer technology to be able to manage that as one example. Or as we go to the other extreme where we have zero P, well, that's pretty profound as well. It's almost like the transition from chromate to phosphate where we had to make the water less corrosive and more scaling. We're going to have to do that to another order of magnitude because the things that are in line to replace phosphorus chemistry as a corrosion inhibitor are even poorer you know, uh, in terms of their efficacy. So that means we'll tend to operate things more, you know, up in 8.8 to 9.2 pH circulating water pH ranges, which means that the scale inhibitors are going to have to be even more effective for calcium carbonate control, for instance. So, you know, I think some of those macro trends, I think, you know, uh, as monitoring and control become more and more and more valuable tools in the water treatment industry, then, you know, things like tag polymers are going to, you know, continue to uh, grow within our industry. So that'll probably be another area where, you know, polymer technology will improve. I see most of it as stepwise as opposed to quantum leaps you know, unless somebody really comes through with some breakthrough type technology. Mike, you've been in this industry for a while. What's one of the major changes you've seen in water treatment throughout your career? Yeah, I I think I've been very, very fortunate to be able to be on kind of at the beginning of the AWT revolution, if you will. You know, I, I think, you know, when I started in 86, you know, just to be very, very candid, the company I was working for wasn't really going to turn me loose with uh, tier one companies, you know, to as a young, you know, 20 year old or whatever, they weren't going to connect me with somebody in Naperville or Trevos or whatever. And so I really began working with, you know, a lot of the independent water treatment companies and became very connected within that group. And that's where my heart and passion is. And, uh, you know, I think it's been really fascinating to see how independent water treatment companies have really exploded over the last several decades and, and grown into, you know, leaders in, in the industry. That that's that's been pretty interesting and, and I I'm happy that I've been able to observe that and participate in that to some degree. Mike, you and I have both been involved in volunteer leadership. We've chaired committees. We've been on boards together. I'm curious, why do you do that, and why should others consider doing that? I have always have said, and when I talk to people that get to serve, say, on the board of AWT or whatever, I, I was fortunate to be able to do that at one point in my career as a supplier, and it was probably one of the best experiences of my life as a career person. So I think anytime, whether it's, you know, within industry or in your personal life, anytime you help somebody else, 
you know, or give somebody a gift in some way or what have you, you're always the one that gets the bigger reward than the person that you're, you know, giving to or the organization that you're giving to or what have you. And I think that's very much true here. I mean, it's helped me grow. It's helped me learn. It helped me, you know, see a lot of diverse types of opinions on technology, on the industry in this case or what have you. I've just, uh, it's been extremely rewarding. Mike, this is your third time in the hot seat, so are you ready for round three of the lightning round? Probably not. (laughs) Well, let's see how you do. Mike, what are two books that everyone should read this year, and why do you enjoy them? Okay, so I haven't been able to read as much, but I was kind of thinking that you might ask me something about this, so I'm going to give you a hybrid answer. So I am struggling only because of me, not because of the book. But I love the book, it's, and it's a movie now. It's The Killers of the Flower Moon. That's a very interesting uh, book, and it's a true story. And it was highly documented about the Osage Indians out in the Dakotas back in the 1920s. And the government basically took their land, okay, that, you know, no political thing there, but it backfired on them because they put them on this really rocky, hilly, crappy land. What turned out, it was full of oil. And so you had in the 1920s, all of these Native Americans that are multimillionaires in the 1920s. I mean, there's stories in this book about, you know, somebody has a flat tire of their brand new car, they just go get a new car, you know, it's that type of lifestyle. So that's a very fascinating book. What I have been doing a lot lately is uh, watching um, documentaries. I love to watch documentaries. So I've got a couple that have been really fascinating to me. And I won't spoil these, but one I would recommend would be Donut King. And it's about this guy who immigrates as a refugee into the U.S. from Cambodia and back in the 1970s. And he, he starts to work for Wenzel's Donut Shop in California and then starts to do it himself. So he opens up his own business, and then he starts to bring all of his family and friends and so forth, and they start opening literally hundreds of donut shops in California to the point where, like, Dunkin' Donuts can't break into this market. And then there's kind of a twist ending. So I would highly recommend that one. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's one called Honeyland, And it's about a lady in Macedonia, very, very, very poor lady that lives out in the village with her mom, just the two of them out in the middle of nowhere. And she is using traditional methods, collecting honey from bees. And then all of a sudden, another family comes in and they decide to start doing that as well. They destroy her bees and that has kind of a twist ending as well but uh, those are two great documentaries that uh, I've really enjoyed watching lately. Mike what are you looking forward to most in the new year? Oh that's a great question. I have a lot of travel coming up that's personal kind of travel uh, coming up so I'm looking forward to that a lot. We have started going to Honduras, doing some uh, work down there with local. And uh, so I've got two trips next year lined up to go to Honduras. Really excited about that. My middle daughter has a uh, trip that she has to make with her uh, graduation from college. That's an international trip. I'm going to be able to go on that with her. And then we got a vacation plan. So uh, yeah, I think that's probably what I'm looking forward most to in the coming year. 
Mike, I want to let you know Honduras is some of the most amazing scuba diving you could do. So see if you can work that in. I've heard that. There's an island there that I've flown over that I can see that looks pretty spectacular. Mike, a lot of people listen to this podcast when they're thinking about getting into this industry. What do you want them to know as they're considering, is this the right career for them? You know, it's funny. I was visiting some customers this past week and we were talking about that a little bit. One thing to know is that once you're in, you're probably never going to get out. I don't know if that's unique to this industry because I never got out. So this is kind of the only industry I've known, but people that get in tend to stay in. I think that speaks very, very well for the industry. So that that would probably be one you know major thing if, if you're considering getting in. This is a great community. There's a lot of people you can learn from, lean on, collaborate with. So I think that, you know, this is an industry that's a community. And in some cases, it can be a family. And, um, you know, it's, it's a great, rewarding, you know, experience to be in this industry. I could not agree more. And you and I have definitely shared that community with all the things we've done together over the past years. So I want to thank you for that friendship. And I also want to thank you for coming back for your third time on the podcast, Scaling Up H2O. Well, thank you very much. I I appreciate the invitation. Scaling Nation, Mike is just one of those people that is able to take complex information and deliver it in a way that everybody can follow along. And so many people comment whenever he comes on this podcast that they love his Southern accent. So there you go. You got a Southern accent, very easy to follow along. Mike, thank you for once again coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And I'm not sure if I kept track of all the times that Mike has come on this podcast. Now, I've done some drive-bys at various conventions where Mike has graciously talked about what was going on at AWT conventions and some other conventions that I've been at. So I don't have all of those that he's been on, but I know he's been on episode 14, which is a very early episode. In fact, he was one of the people that uh, said, he wanted to help me with anything I could do with this podcast. And I said, well, you could be a guest. And he said, sign me up. So he was episode 14. We had him on again in episode 176. And I know there have been several episodes since then. So um, Mike, thanks for all you do for the podcast. And, and Mike, thank you for whenever I have a question about polymers or different chemistries, you are one of my go-to guys that I talk with to make sure that I am doing things that I'm supposed to be doing. Nation, I hope you have people like that on your speed dial. Is that still a thing? Am I aging myself by calling it speed dial? Anyway, You've got a cell phone, and I know you have people programmed into it. So I hope people like Mike is one of those people. And another person that I have on my speed dial, yes, I said it, I'm calling it speed dial, is James McDonald. And of course, James McDonald, he gives us a reason to try to get smarter each and every week. So here's another opportunity with a brand new Drop by Drop with James. Welcome to Drop by Drop with James, the podcast segment where we wonder, explore, think about, imagine, and learn industrial water treatment. You guessed it, drop by drop. 
together. In today's episode, we're thinking about the cooling tower connectivity set point. Picture it, if you will. The cooling tower is running like normal. As water flows, recirculates, and evaporates, we see the connectivity continues to increase. Then it happens. Ah! The connectivity reaches a set point on the controller. Then what? Seriously, what literally happens next? I can't think of anything. Does the controller immediately send a signal to the blowdown valve to open up? How does the controller's dead band or differential or whatever your controller manufacturer chooses to call it come into play? The controller uses a dead band so the blowdown valve does not try to chatter open and closed as the connectivity fluctuates from being exactly on the set point to not being exactly on the set point. Such chatter trying to open and close the valve could very quickly wear a valve out as well as the relays in the controller itself. Whoa! Plus, the valves may not even be given enough time to reach their minimum energized times. Does the dead band sandwich a connectivity set point? Or is it a one-way setup where it starts at the set point? For example, if your connectivity set point is 1,000 microsiemens and your dead band is 100 microsiemens, would your blowdown valve first open at 1,000 or 1,050 microsiemens? This will depend upon the setup in the controller and the options the manufacturer has made available to you. Another point to consider is whether any biocide lockout timers are currently active, which would prevent the cooling tower from blowing down during a biocide application. Once your blowdown valve is actually open, though, does the cooling tower conductivity start to drop immediately? Have you ever thought about this before? Hmm. You need something to settle you down. The answer is actually, it probably does not start dropping immediately. The connectivity may even continue to rise until enough water has been removed from the system to drop the level low enough to trigger the makeup water valve to open. As fresh makeup water starts flowing, it will dilute the cooling tire water, and this is when the connectivity will begin to drop. Whoa! Next, how long will the connectivity drop until the controller closes the blowdown valve? This is where the dead band or differential will come into play. In our previous example of connectivity set point of 1000 microsiemens, a dead band of 100 microsiemens, when the connectivity drops to 900 microsiemens, the controller closes the blowdown valve and the overall connectivity pattern repeats itself. As you can see, the control of connectivity in a cooling tower is not as simple as opening and closing a valve. There are design considerations to limit the wear and tear on the blowdown valve, plus the reality of having to trigger makeup water flow as the water level lowers for the conductivity to actually start to drop. I'm James McDonald, and I want to encourage you to be like water by forming bonds with those around you, dissolving new knowledge, and making worthy ripples, drop by drop. James, as always, thanks for doing that. And Nation, if you want to get caught up on any drop-by-drops, you can go to scalinguph2o.com, and we're going to have all of those listed for you. So don't worry if you missed a couple, you can catch up. And there's so many people that try to keep up with James each and every week and every year where we do this, imagine all the new information that you were getting, all the reinforcement that you were getting with the information you think you already know, but the way James is asking you to think about it, maybe you're gonna get to know it a little bit better. 
I hope to see you at the technical training that I talked about at the top of the show. Nation, if you have a show idea, don't keep that to yourself. Go to scalinguph2o.com and go over to our show ideas page. Let us know who you want us to talk to. Let us know what idea you have. Let us know if you have a question or a comment, whatever it is, we want to know it. My name is Trace Blackmore, and I love bringing this show to you. We'll, of course, have a new one for you next Friday. In the meantime, tell somebody about the Scaling Up H2O podcast, and I will see you next week. Take care, everybody. 